0: Well, good morning, we're continuing our series through the book of John, our first through sixth graders are with us for the summer in order to give our Sunday school teachers a break and also because we just think it's good from time to time for these kids to be part of the service in a lot of churches probably the way that I grew up, uh, it's possible to go all the way through your late teens without ever actually attending a church service, And so we just think it's really good for these kids, even from a young age, to be sitting next to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa with the finger open on the Bible and taking notes and watching us have reverence for the word and worship God and so on. So if you are a first through sixth grader, I want to encourage you to have a Bible open on one lap and then on the other side, you're probably going to want to have a pen and paper. You can draw pictures of what I'm talking about, or you can write down some sentences that grab you. You feel like the Lord is talking to you, some things that your own heart uh, needs to think about and, and work on this week. This morning is our second week getting to know the woman at the well here in John chapter 4. And we're looking especially at this concept of living water Now, I really like this lady. I like the woman at the well. Uh, She's a Samaritan, which means racially speaking, she's on very bad terms with the Jews, and so she's very surprised when Jesus even wants to speak to her, let alone drink out of the same uh, cup that she has. And she has come to this well uh, by herself at a very strange time, most likely because she's avoiding people, and we learn that she's been married five times, and now she's shacking up with a fifth, and... uh, In shepherd groups last week, we saw that she's a pretty sharp lady, pretty smart lady. She's having this theological conversation with Jesus, and I love that Jesus is having a theological conversation with her, especially during a time uh, when women were not considered to be important enough to be trained in the Bible. And... uh, so I just think this lady is all-around interesting, and I love the way that Jesus is interacting with her. She comes to this well just thinking she's going to get water. It's probably just a normal, average day. And she ends up having this conversation with the creator and ruler of the universe. And here we have a, uh, a copy of their conversation in John chapter 4. So we're going to look again this morning at this concept of living water. Last week we started that, and this week we're going to continue In John chapter 4, verse 7, I'll just reread a few of these verses. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying, Do you give me a drink? You would have asked him. And and he would have given you living water. When they're talking about living water, we have have pipes and a whole water system. And so the concept of living water is not particularly important to us in relation to how it was uh, for them and how it is in probably most parts of the world where living water is very important. Living water is water that's moving. It's just water that is moving like a river or a spring. It is the opposite of standing water. And so during that time, they would cut these holes in the limestone, and these would be cisterns for collecting rainwater, but it also collected a lot of other gunk. And so you would use this water during really, really dry times, but how wonderful is it to find living, clean, fresh, alive water? And during that time, this became an an amazing metaphor, uh, understandably, for all different kinds of spiritual concepts. And so our job here, as we're trying to interpret this text, is to figure out not any possibility that living water might mean but to really try and figure out now what exactly does Jesus mean when he uses this metaphor because this was common among all of the religions during that time to use living water as an illustration of all kinds of different things so what does Jesus mean by this now this lady doesn't know that he's speaking in metaphors and so she says to him in verse 11 sir you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep it's probably about 100 100 feet deep so you really have to go down there and get it Uh, Where do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the living water of Jesus Christ is so alive that it creates life in the person who drinks it. Jesus is claiming to be the source of eternal life here. And so she says, give me this water. Now, last week we unpacked the metaphor of living water by looking at what the prophets meant when they used this phrase, living water, and we saw that they were usually talking about cleansing from sin. So we explored that concept last week. This week I'd like to explore another meaning of the metaphor that this living water that Jesus offers to us is refreshing and it is satisfying. And so uh, so you see this phrase here, if you drink of this, you're never going to need to drink again because it's so satisfying that you're never going to get thirsty again. Now you know what it's like to be very very thirsty, uh, and then you drink this huge glass of cold water, and that is a beautiful example of Christian contentment. I can remember the most thirsty that i 've ever been in my entire life. I was on a train, it was in Bosnia, and our train got rerouted to a strange place about twenty years ago. We started seeing bombs drop on the city of my best friend and uh, roommate and we hadn 't had a drink for a really long time, and I remember riding home a letter about just this, this, almost this fantasy I was having of dunking my head in a big, huge bowl of ice water. And I still remember that. And you can probably remember times when you've been very, very thirsty too. And when we drink during those times of thirst, it is a beautiful example of Christian contentment. And God uses this metaphor of living water to describe the effect of himself in our souls except that the satisfaction that he provides is lasting. Every time you've ever had a drink, it only has this temporary effect. And yet the kind of satisfaction that Jesus Christ brings into our lives, the kind of satisfaction and contentment and happiness that God brings into a human soul is lasting. Uh, John four thirteen again, Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him "'will never be thirsty again.'" All human beings have a thirsty soul. God created us that way. God created us to be satisfied by him as our creator. But as sinners, we scramble for all different kinds of water sources. This woman at the well hopes that men will satisfy her. And you've known people like this. They'll go from one romantic thing to the next romantic thing to the next romantic thing because they can't seem to function By themselves, they have to have a man on their arm or something like this. And some of us look for this kind of contentment in other places, going from job to job or from doctor to doctor or from movie to movie or from drug to drug in order to find that contentment that our souls desire. But Jesus offers something better, something lasting. And I know that this sounds like just religious hyperbole that the preacher's up here saying, Jesus satisfies. And you're sitting here in this seriously bad situation thinking, well, that sounds nice, but I have a real life. So, what I would like to do this morning is prove to you that God considers himself to be all satisfying and that there is a job or a duty that we have in order to learn the art of Christian contentment. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that God is more satisfying than other things and that if we can just be satisfied by God, we can kind of fill up the rest of our contentment with other things. What I'm saying is that God considers himself to be fully satisfying so that other things are irrelevant to our contentment. So let me prove to you here that this is how God uh, considers himself. I'm going to give you this morning. I encourage you to write these down. Three attributes of God that produce lasting contentment. Three attributes of God that produce lasting contentment. This living water that Jesus Christ is offering to this precious Samaritan woman who has made a disaster of her life looking for satisfaction in many other places. This living water that Jesus offers is truly satisfying. And the first attribute of God, that produces lasting contentment is God's glory. God's attribute of glory produces lasting contentment. And what I what I mean to say is that thinking about or you know meditating on, ruminating on God's glory creates contentment in our souls. Why is that? It's because God is so glorious that his glory outshines the glory of all other things people and experiences. Psalm 71, 8, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Now, that psalm is interesting. You can look at it on your own time, but Psalm 71 is a prayer for help. The psalmist is in a heap of trouble because he's surrounded by what he calls wicked people who are attacking him. And so Psalm 71 is a prayer where he's crying out for help. And what what does this psalmist do? When he's surrounded by wickedness and all of the stress of that to the point that he gets down on his knees and he's trying to concentrate on the Lord and so on. He says, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. What that means is that what this guy does, this skill that he's using in order to be content in the midst of a very difficult situation is all day he fills his mouth with praise to God, particularly because God is glorious. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. If you are a chronically disappointed person, I'm not saying unhappy because I think it's possible to be in a disaster of a situation, be very unhappy, and yet in your inner core to be content and quiet before the Lord. But if you are a chronically disappointed person where everything just falls short, my guess is that you haven't tried this, to fill your mouth ...with praise to God, particularly for his attribute of glory all day long. A Christian confronts his dissatisfaction as we live in this present darkness, we live in this very frustrating time. A Christian confronts his dissatisfaction by remembering that God is glorious, more glorious than anything, and he is worthy of constant praise... Jeremiah Burroughs, in the classic book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, it's one of those old Puritan books that seems to get to the heart of it better than anything. And for those of you who have a Kindle, it's free on the Kindle, and so there's just no excuse for not reading this. It's a wonderful book. And Burroughs says this, Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me, in every condition. In Jeremiah 2:13, God says, "My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." And we talked about this in the shepherd groups this last week. You remember a cistern is this thing they're digging out of the rock so that it'll collect water. And what God is saying here is, "Look, I am this massive river that is flowing right next to your house and you're going over digging this little hole for a puddle and drinking out of that. It's, a, it's irrational and it's offensive. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, these cisterns. And the image here is that God is intending to be satisfying and caring for his people, cleaning them, refreshing them. And yet as fallen people, we tend to look for happiness in the things, people, and experiences of this world. And those cisterns, irrationally displace God's living water. God is so glorious that it is irrational to search for greater glory elsewhere. And we see this all the time. It was just a couple of nights ago, Libby and I sat down to watch TV together and I wanted to watch one show and she wanted to watch another and I threw a little pity party for myself because, well, I guess I don't get to watch what I want. And I, I, I even at the time, I knew it. But it is so irrational for my, for my... Whole countenance and my whole life to feel like it has just now fallen apart. Because of a TV show, God is more glorious than any TV show. And we know that this is true. We get in a bad mood because you haven't had lunch yet. God is more glorious than the burger or the the whatever. But we become so worldly that these things of the world are actually more important to us than God is in terms of our contentment. And of course, there are many other worse things that happen in our lives than not being able to Watch the TV show that we want or some other thing that we have our hearts set on. There are tragedies in our lives and all kinds of things that disturb us. And you remember Psalm 62, verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And Psalm 62 is another one of those psalms where he's got several verses right in the middle where he talks about how people are using words to batter him. And so he's just in this awful scenario and he comes and he speaks to himself about God alone being satisfying. You see, contentment contentment is a duty of the Christian. It, it is an art. It's a skill You can hear this psalmist here uh, taking charge of his broken heart and arresting himself and speaking to himself, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. I shall not be shaken. See, that is a person who knows what it is to be shaken. And he is arresting himself with biblical truths. That is a skill that a Christian needs to learn. We cannot just expect uh, uh, contentment to settle into our hearts without an effort to speak to ourselves and mold ourselves in such a way that uh, we're interacting with reality. Again, here's Jeremiah Burroughs. To be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. And Burroughs defines contentment this way. He says, I offer the following description. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's a great definition of contentment. A sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment is not when our hearts are are just roiling on the inside with frustration and discontent, but we somehow are able to control our bodies uh, so that we're not speaking anger and frustration, and we say the right things, but deep down we're actually very disturbed. Contentment is when contentment actually settles into our hearts. And so here's, again, Burroughs later in his book. He says, though an affliction is on you, do not let your heart sink under it. So far as your heart sinks and you are discouraged under affliction, so much you need to learn this lesson of contentment. And he spends the rest of his book explaining uh, this duty and skill of contentment. Do not think that a quick sermon or a quick prayer uh, will calm your troubled heart. Sometimes that happens by God's grace. But our problem is that we do not see God's glory surrounded by the things of this world, surrounded by the troubles of this world. We do not see God in his glory. And we have got to spend serious, dedicated time looking for him and remembering him and focusing our hearts so that we will, uh, so that we will feel in a way that is in compliance with reality, unseen realities. Thankfully, we serve a glorious God, and his glory outshines and outstrips all the good things of this world. And so remember this, and by remembering, you will have found a powerful way to shape an unhappy heart. He is living water for parched souls. The second attribute of God that produces lasting contentment is that God is gracious. We worship a gracious God uh, who saves lost sheep like us. And so listen to this in Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, the satisfying thing is that our souls may live. And God is so gracious that He brings life into a place where there is only death. Psalm 107, 8, and 9. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. As we saw last week, living water, the living water that Jesus offers us, cleanses us from sin. That's its primary function. And his steadfast love, his hesed, solves the greatest problem facing mankind. That is the crushing weight of sin. And remembering his grace is a powerful way to combat unhappiness. We think that our problems are these, these other things and people and experiences and situations and so on. When really our greatest problem is that we are unreconciled to a holy God. And God provides for our greatest need through Jesus Christ on the cross. So that in the middle of staggering loss, he says to us, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. When the troubles and frustrations of life smack your soul with fear and with anger, learn to remind yourself of God's grace as the psalmist sings, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Lastly, God's attribute of sovereignty produces lasting contentment. God's attribute of sovereignty produces lasting contentment. Our God is all-powerful. He can do anything at all. Nobody can tell God what to do. Nothing is too hard for God. And since he is all-powerful, he governs the world that he has made. He raises and removes kings and presidents. He decides where the speck of dust will fly. Our contentment depends on our confidence in that sovereign God. Remember this this verse, and I know that I've read it a lot lately, but I just really like this passage. So here we go again in Deuteronomy chapter eight. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. You see, we tend to forget that God leads our lives. And what is the common condition of God's leadership in in our lives? Let's let's listen here. God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Now, why would God do something like that? He says that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We are content when we remember that bread alone, that the things of this world do not satisfy. But God does satisfy our deepest longings, and it is the irritations and tragedies of this life that allow us to discover this all-satisfying God, that somehow, as Job talked about, the treasures of darkness, we fumble around in this awfulness, and we find something solid and beautiful there. And this is not only true for the ancient Jew that God led through the wilderness and tested in this way, but all believers live under a sovereign God who disciplines us for our good and who blesses us with trials of many kinds. These are all phrases from Hebrews. uh, So that we might learn that man does not live by bread alone. What a gracious God we have that he would train us in this way. The Christian needs nothing but Christ, nothing but living water to find true contentment. The Christian does not need a good marriage or food or enough money or health or anything. The Christian needs Christ. He is so glorious. God is so gracious and so sovereign that our contentment is lasting and can survive any earthly loss. I tend to feel sorry for myself when I don't get what I want from all, for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, and my contentment is disturbed by all kinds of things. But Christians have this duty to remember God and to drink long at his cleansing and refreshing pool. One more quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. I suppose that if you were to go now from one end of this congregation to the other and speak thus to every soul, would you not submit to God's disposal in whatever condition he might place you? You would say, God forbid, that that it should be otherwise. But we have a saying, there is a great deal of deceit in general statements. In general, you would submit to anything. But what if it is in this or that particular case which crosses you most? Then, anything but that, we are usually apt to think that any condition is better than the condition in which God has placed us. Now, this is not contentment. It should be not only to any condition in general, but for the kind of affliction, including that which most crosses you. God, it may be, strikes you in your child. Oh, if it had been in my possessions, you say, I would be content. Perhaps he strikes you in your marriage. Oh, you say, I would rather have been stricken in my health. And if he had struck you in your health, oh, than if it had been in my trading, I would not have cared. But we must not be our own carvers. Whatever particular afflictions God may place us in, we must be content in them. Living water, living water brings cleansing into our hearts from sin, which this precious woman at the well needed, and we all need just as much. And living water also provides deep, lasting, refreshing contentment, which this lady has tried to find in all the wrong places, as do we. Isaiah 26, 3-4, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Commit your life to pursuing that kind of peace, and may God bless you with perfect peace as we wait patiently for his return. Let's close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, I, I ask and we Beg that you would reveal yourself to us in the midst of our sufferings and also in the midst of our joys and our, our happiness, that in any situation we would rely on you as the most satisfying source of happiness. Lord God, we know that you are glorious and yet our sin-sick hearts tend to look for more glorious things that will bring substantive happiness into our lives. God, forgive us for that and help us to see your glory. God, we know that we have this problem of sin and yet we tend to make that peripheral to our lives. And we know, we know theologically, doctrinally, that our sin is our biggest problem And our greatest need and our greatest desire is to live eternally reconciled to you in your presence. And we praise you and thank you for providing for that need. And I pray that you would fill our minds with the great truths of the gospel so that our lips would easily praise you for your grace. And God, we also know that you are a sovereign God. Nothing that you do is wrong. You make no mistakes. You have so much to teach us. And here we are in the 101 class saying, it's too hard. God, God, help us to be uh, students and children under your care. Who learn that you are glorious and great and good and all-powerful who rely on you knowing all things, including the future, that you have made so many great promises and that you are faithful to every single one of them. You have created everything that we know. We praise you for how great and how good you are and we pray that you would help us to trust you more. Help us to have a quiet frame before you even through tears, even through a a scrambling to fix situations and to solve problems, I pray that in our deepest core, that we would be content before your majesty. And Lord, as we sing a few songs here now, I pray that they would be true words coming from our mouths. May you be glorified and honored in this place and in our homes